Well, a few weeks ago, we celebrated as Americans 4th of July, and in my home, that means you get a small window where you can listen to country music. Okay, so I'm from the South, but I was also born with ears, and therefore, country music often does not play in our home. Uh, but my wife, uh, who is, is celebrating her first 4th of July as an American citizen who loves country music, uh, as all good uh, you know, immigrants lie so that they can get in, right? Uh, so she loves country music, so she asked, can we, you know, it's very patriotic listening to country music, can we listen to it? And I said, sure. And so as it was just, you know, uh, beaming through our homes, the sound waves of all the country songs were going through our home all day, you know, you're hearing the typical themes Every country, there's like four country songs that have the same sort of themes. It's got a patriotism, which is why you listen to it. It's got a dirt road in it. It's got a truck. Uh, it's got some form of lost love, some form of cold beer, uh, some vague reference to Christianity, Jesus take the wheel and whatnot. Uh, but perhaps the biggest theme of country music is this idea of home. My hometown, right? Sweet home. Alabama, where the skies are so blue, take me home, country road, West Virginia, right? Or who says you can't go home? There's only one place that calls me one of their own. There's this idea that appeals to us, which is why it's in 100% of country songs, of this nostalgia, the, the place that made us, even if it was through difficult times. It's this place where you can go be yourself. It's this place where you can go be accepted. And so today we're going to look at a passage of Jesus going home of going to sweet home Nazareth, which doesn't have quite the ring to it. Uh, but he left uh, several months ago, maybe a year ago, we left uh, Nazareth in chapter 4. And since then, Jesus has been on a giant uh, Messiah kingdom-bringing mission trip. He's been preaching the gospel of the kingdom all throughout Galilee. He's been healing many. His fame has been growing like crazy as the crowds just grow and grow and grow. And today, for the first time, he's going to return home. And there's this great anticipation. What will happen? Will the hometown hero, the, the zero to hero who left and now has all this great fame and he's coming back, will he be welcomed with open arms? Will he be celebrated? Will his old buddies run up to him and wait his arrival with eager anticipation? And we're going to see, spoiler alert, the answer is no. He will not be welcomed with open arms. In fact, this story of Jesus returning home would make for a terrible country song because it's a story ultimately about rejection. He comes home and is ultimately rejected. So as we look at this kind of hinge passage in Matthew, as we end the parables and open up into this revelation of who Jesus truly is, we're going to look at this final story of rejection and see in particular four things, four things that are happening in this passage. Number one, we're going to see the nature of rejection. Number two, the reason for rejection. Number three, the results of rejection. And number four, we'll look at the redemption of rejection. So we'll look at the nature of rejection. What is it that's actually being rejected? What's going on here? Why is Jesus being rejected? What is specifically being rejected? The reason for it, what is it that they're seeing that causes them to do it? What is the result of it? And then we'll look at the redemption of it. How does it fit in the bigger story of the scripture? So let's look at the first, the nature of rejection. Look at verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. So we're done with the big section on the parables. No more 
giant, you know, 50 verse sermons until we get to the next section of the parables and Jesus coming to his hometown. Matthew doesn't say in this passage that it is Nazareth, but he already has said it back in chapter two, verse 23, that Jesus is from Nazareth. So that's where he's, he's going. It's a very small village town, kind of a no-name community. Uh, and John, maybe you remember in the Gospel of John when Philip, a disciple, comes to Nathaniel, a future disciple, and says, we found the Messiah, he's from Nazareth. Nathaniel laughs and he says, you know, what good thing comes from Nazareth, right? No way in that small podunk town. So it's a small little town. Jesus is returning there again for the first time since chapter four, since the beginning of his ministry. And there would be this eager expectation probably of rest. There's no more battle with the Pharisees, right? He could just go home, place where he's known and rest. There'd be this maybe probably expectation of celebration of all of his accomplishments. He left a nobody, and then comes back with this huge following, doing all these astounding works, and probably most likely there'd be this expectation of acceptance, of a welcoming back, right? These are his people, and he's, he's of them, right? And so they would celebrate him. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist pastor, commenting on this passage says, with what emotion did our Lord return to his native place? How ready was he to associate with former friends, for he taught them in their synagogue. How eagerly they came to hear the young countrymen who had made such a great stir, so great a stir. So Jesus returns home with all this great anticipation and teaches in their synagogues. This would have been his home church, if you will. This would have been the synagogue that as a boy, he's sitting, learning from the rabbis, listening, and now he's getting a chance to, to preach in his home synagogue. Matthew doesn't tell us what he taught, uh, but this story is in all four Gospels. Matthew only tells us that he taught. Luke gives us a bit more detail. Luke tells us this is the story where Jesus actually unrolls the scroll of Isaiah reads a prophecy, a promise that one day a Messiah will come and bring in the kingdom of God. He rolls it up, sits down and says, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. So he's teaching, but he's not just giving them any Bible lesson. He's teaching them he is the Messiah that all of Israel has been waiting for, for all their history. That's a big lesson. Right, that's different than just saying God is good, right? And just giving nice, good meat and potatoes lesson. He's pointing to himself as the Messiah. And notice, how do his hearers respond? Look at verse 54. He taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? So what's the response of the people? As Jesus is teaching them, they're astonished. They're wowed, they're amazed, they're overwhelmed, specifically at two things, his wisdom, his teaching. We see this response pretty much anytime Jesus is teaching, the crowd is in awe at the authority that he speaks with, at the wisdom that he speaks with. And then the second thing, his mighty works, his power, his miracles, they're astonished, they're blown away. But as we keep reading, unfortunately, we see their astonishment is very short-lived. It eventually gives way to skepticism. And so they begin to ask this series of questions about him. Primarily, the main question they're asking is the source of this wisdom and power. Where does this man get these things? Where does he get this wisdom and power, mighty works that we're being astonished by? We see that in verse 54. So notice, they are not denying his power. There are no atheists in this crowd. They're, they're very much recognizing 
the works. They're very much recognizing the power. They're in awe by it. They just want to know where is it coming from. And this has been a common question throughout Jesus' ministry. We've seen the Pharisees say, yeah, he does these great works, but he does it by the power of demons. It's by the strength of demons that he casts out demons. So the source question has been a common question that we've seen throughout Matthew. It's the same question that the people of Nazareth has. Where does he get this stuff? It's there. We see it. We're astonished by it. But where is it coming from? And so to try and figure it out, they begin to ask a series of questions about his family origin. Look at verse 55. Is not this the carpenter's son? They're wowed by Jesus' teaching, but wait a minute, isn't this Joseph's boy? The eldest son will typically take over uh, the father's business. Joseph was a carpenter, and so the people of Nazareth know Jesus as a carpenter, right? He might have made their coffee tables or something like that, right? They know him. Wait a minute, isn't this, this isn't some great, high, exalted rabbi. Isn't this the carpenter's kid? And so since they're asking, did he get this wisdom and power from his dad? Well, no, his dad's just a carpenter. Okay, well, what about his mom? Verse 55, again, is not his mother called Mary? Did he get this wisdom and this power from his mom? Well, no, wait a minute, Mary. Isn't that that teenage girl that got pregnant with him when she wasn't married? And Joseph, out of his kindness, married her anyway, right? Isn't that Mary? Well, certainly he didn't get these mighty things from his mom. He's got a sketchy birth story at best. Okay, so not his mom. Not his dad. What about his siblings, right? Did he get these from his siblings? Verse 85. And are not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, and are not all his sisters with us? Well, did he get it from his siblings? They say, again, well, no. They're just normal people that are around here all the time. The sisters are still here. They haven't even moved away. So not his dad, not his mom, clearly not his normal, unimpressive average like us siblings, so they say he couldn't have gotten this power from his unimpressive family. That can't be the source. And so they ask again in verse 56, where then, if not from his unimpressive family, where then did this man get these things? And though they don't have an answer about the source, they do come to a conclusion about Jesus. And that is that he's nothing special. We're still left with the question. We don't know where he got it, but we're positive he didn't get it from his average, at best, family. And so we have our conclusion. He is nothing special. And then they come to their ultimate conclusion in verse 57. And they took offense at him. They took offense at him. So what's going on there? Why don't they just say, okay, we're just going to discount him and move on. Why take offense at him? Why does it make him angry? Why don't they just leave uninterested like you would do if someone taught you and you were like, nothing special. I'll just leave. You're not going to get mad at the person. You'll just move on until you find a teacher that you like or something like that. Why don't they just move on and find another rabbi? Why do they get offended when they see how unimpressive his family is? Because in Jesus' day, we saw this actually in Matthew 1, that giant genealogy that Matthew starts his gospel with. Your family is like your resume. Your family is how you prove who you are, right? It shows your resume. And Jesus is showing up and he's claiming to be the Messiah, the one that all of Israel has been waiting for, the one through whom God is going to bring about his kingdom. He's claiming to have this wisdom and this power. But in their eyes, he's the unimpressive carpenter's son. 
He's claiming this incredibly high status when he is, according to them, nothing special. He didn't get these things from the Harvard-educated rabbi. He's not this great Ivy League-educated rabbi. He's just the carpenter's son. He's not this great military leader. He's Mary's boy, Mary's sketchy boy. He's not the Messiah King. He's just a normal, average villager like us. He does not belong in the high class, getting all the fame that he is getting from these mighty works. He belongs here with us. He's nothing special. In fact, he's ordinary. We know who he is. We know his family. So where did he get these things? I don't know, but know we're special. That's the conclusion. They're offended and they reject him as a result. And just notice the irony of their rejecting of him. The very reason they reject him as the Messiah is the very reason they should be accepting him as the Messiah. He's just an average carpenter, it's true. He was born in a manger, that's true, that's not impressive. But he's doing these otherworldly works. What other explanation than the power of the living God? Spurgeon, again, says the very thing that should have been a stepping stone for them becomes a stumbling block. They don't, they reject him because they don't understand the way God displays his wisdom and his power. Because the way God displays his wisdom and his power is through weakness, through unimpressiveness. The king of the universe is born in a manger. He's not born in a golden-plated crib in a palace. The savior of the world does grow up a carpenter. He doesn't grow up in the Ivy League rabbinic schools. He's going to defeat Rome, not with this vast army, but actually he's going to defeat the ultimate enemy. How? Through dying. They reject him because they don't know how God works. Paul says in 1 Corinthians The Jews demand a sign, the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who were called, both Jew and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So they don't like his resume and they reject him. So what is it that's at the heart of this rejection? Is it that they're not impressed with him enough? No, they're very impressed. They're astonished by his works. So what is this answer to the first question we have? The nature of rejection. They're not rejecting the power. They're rejecting the person. They like the power. They're astonished by the wisdom. They like to sit and see the mighty works. They just don't like the person doing the mighty works. You see that difference? They're not rejecting the power. They're rejecting the person. They like his stuff. They like what he can do. They just don't like him. Don't like his family resume. So that's the nature of the rejection. They're not rejecting the power. They're rejecting the person. They're rejecting Jesus himself. And as we're about to see, this is pretty ridiculous, right? God is standing before you and you say, no, thanks. You're not good enough for me. Your your resume is not impressive for me. And so they reject God, which is Crazy, And so one of the important questions we need to ask, lest we make the same mistake, lest we have the same blind eyes, is how do you actually get that blind? 
How do you get so blind to where you can have God standing before you, teaching you, doing mighty works, and you reject him and get offended by him? How does that happen? Because you and I are vulnerable to that same mistake every single day. So we need to know how that happens, and that's what we're going to look at next. What is the reason for the rejection? Look at verse 53. But Jesus said to them, after they are offended by him and reject him, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. So prophets, if you know a little bit about your Old Testament history, when God wanted to speak to his people, he would send a man, he would send a prophet who would hear from God and then stand before the people and say, thus says the Lord, and they would repeat the Lord's words. And almost all of them have pretty tragic lives because people don't like being told about their sin. That's right. That's why none of you have friended me on Facebook. Uh, yeah, I'm just kidding. Joke. Uh, so people don't like being told, hey, you were in radical rebellion and you need to come back to the living God. And so most, if not all of the prophets are persecuted, are hated by their own people. When they're in foreign lands, Jonah, they're typically honored. The Ninevites immediately repent, but at home, in their own people, they are rejected. And so we're seeing this play out again, except this time, Jesus is not just another Jeremiah. Jesus is not just another Isaiah. In fact, he is the prophet. Deuteronomy, right before Israel's about to go take the promised land, right at the end of the first five books, Moses gives one final sermon and says, gives this prophecy, one day God will raise up from among you a prophet like me, the prophet of prophets, if you will, with a capital P, and that's Jesus. He's here as the prophet of prophets, but not only that, he's also here as God's son, God himself. Notice, Jesus never says, thus says the Lord. He does not repeat something he's heard. He says, I say. He's not just the prophet of prophets being rejected. He is God being rejected. So if rejecting Isaiah or Jeremiah is foolish, rejecting Jesus is unthinkable. He's giving them the breath that they're using to exhale their rejection of him. That's foolish. That's pretty blind. And so how are they that blind? What is the reason for that rejection? Notice they've concluded there's nothing special about him. His family's around. He's familiar to us. He's just normal. He's just familiar. And as the old saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt. When something becomes normal, when something just becomes, you know, part of the wallpaper or part of the background, or just there's a sense in which it just becomes white noise, when something is really familiar to us, it's just there. No matter how impressive it is, it just kind of fades into the background. It kind of loses its wonder over time. Growing up, uh, my family took one vacation several times. So every couple of years we took the same vacation, which was to go to Disney World. Uh, and so if you've been to Disney World, Epcot is one of the parks, and they have this giant ball uh, that is, uh, I think it's actually called, we just, everyone calls it the ball, but I think it's actually called Spaceship Earth. And it's this very slow ride where you're, you're going through, and it's, it's, it's meant to be this history of human communication 
So you just go through, and they give you a little turn sometimes so you can pretend it's a roller coaster. But you're just looking at, like, built things. And I remember as a, like, middle schooler, like 20 years ago or 15 years ago, however old I am, uh, seeing there was this, like, way in the future section, right? You get, like, telegrams, and you're like, yeah, old people, male, old people, telephones. At that point, you're like me. And then it was, like, way in the future, like... 2090 or something like that, there was a, a boy sitting in America looking at a TV screen speaking in lifetime to a, a girl in Japan. And it was like, I, I remember thinking like, could you imagine if that was real? That would be insane, right? That's like, again, 2090 type stuff. That's when Back to the Future 2 becomes real and we have flying cars and hoverboards and then we'll be able to talk to people, see their faces live time on the other side of the planet. That would be insane and everyone in this room with an iPhone can do that now. And no one in this room walked in saying, have you heard of this FaceTime stuff? Have you guys heard of Skype? It is crazy. Nobody thinks that. But when it first came out, we did. Or when it didn't exist, we thought that would be the height of technology. I don't know how we would get any further than that, but now it's just normal. It was incredible, now it's normal, and then it becomes nothing special. Familiarity with something blinds you to wonder. That's part one. And the key here of why they're offended is when something is normal or unimpressive, and then that unimpressive thing starts demanding things from your life, starts telling you how you are to live, all of a sudden, you're offended. Who are you to tell me what I'm supposed to do? How dare this carpenter's kid claim he's the Messiah, claim that I need to be poor in spirit if I'm going to inherit the kingdom? Claim that I need to be meek if I'm going to inherit the earth. Claim that I need to pick up my cross and follow him if I want to find true life. Who is this guy? This is Mary's kid. I know his brothers and sisters. They're normal, small-town, no-name villagers. Who does this guy think he is? That's why they're offended. They're very familiar with him. So therefore, they're blinded to his wonder. And when he starts making the demands that Jesus makes... Pick up your cross, follow me. Lay down your life to find life. There's only one option, offense at that normal, unimpressive thing, trying to tell me how I'm going to live my life. That's why they're offended. That's the reason for the rejection. Now, the question for us to ask is, do we have the proper ingredients around us to make this same mistake? Are we in danger of Jesus becoming a little too familiar, of gospel things just becoming like white noise. As we live in a Bible Belt culture with Christian music playing in our Chick-fil-A restaurants, or there's a literal statue of the Holy Spirit like half a mile down the road in the Adriatica and Bible verses all over the place, or you pass 30 churches on the way here, there's 96 plus churches in our town of McKinney itself. Do we have the ingredients to just get a little too familiar with Jesus to where he begins to fade into the wallpaper. He's not in the foreground, he's in the background. Or, let me ask it positively, are you astounded by Jesus every day? When he passes through your mind, when the realities of the gospel pass through your mind in the morning, does it blow you away? 
Does the reality that the God who said, let there be light, called your name to be his children, rescued you from eternal damnation so that you could have eternal joy with him as your father, is that the core truth of your life? Does that fill your throat with praise every day? Or do you think about it every Sunday and you think, cool. And then you move on. We like Jesus, but he's, yeah, I like my wallpaper too. I like white noise. I go to sleep to it. Are you astounded by him? Let me ask it in another way. Are you offended when Jesus demands things of you? Are you offended when Jesus requires great things of you, when he requires things from your finances to give incredibly sacrificially and joyfully? Does that offend you? Or let's be more realistic. Do we pretend that we've forgotten about that section of the scriptures? We're like, oh, yeah, yeah I'll do it. Yeah, I've just got a paycheck coming in. We'll, we'll have another budget meeting in my house. Right? We just... Are you offended at the unthinkably high cost of being a Christian, giving your life and picking up a torture device, a cross, and following him towards death? Does that offend you? When he encroaches on your comfort, live in a way where your life is characterized as a living sacrifice. Does that offend you? Or do we pretend like we haven't read that section of the scriptures? Or do we just kind of rationalize it away? I don't want to be legalistic, so I know there's like high calls. But yeah, you know, I want to be a grace person, right? Do we twist terms and things like that? Just kind of keep living how we want to live. When he comes to you and says, I require all of you. Does that offend you? Are we much, much, much closer to Nazareth than we thought? Has he become white noise? And then if his demands brought great offense, if he is, let me just warn you, if he does become familiar, if he becomes someone you say thank you to for getting me out of hell and then I move on to other things, you will never be able to live the way he's called you to live. You'll never be able to obey the way the scriptures call you to obey, and you will eventually grow offended. You will eventually flip who lives for who. You'll eventually begin to get mad at him when you have problems. Don't you exist to solve all the issues in my life? Why do I have all these difficulties, Jesus? You'll begin to say, you live for me. That's what your offense will most likely do. You won't say, I'm not a Christian anymore. You'll just make Jesus the one who lives for you rather than you living for him. That's the danger of becoming too familiar, of just narrowing him down to unimpressive or normal or in the background. So that's the reason for our rejection. And next we see, what is the result? So Nazareth rejects him. What is the result of their rejection? Look at verse 54. And he, Jesus, did not do many mighty works there, because of their unbelief. So the mighty works, that, that word there is the same thing that they were amazed at when he taught in verse 54. They're amazed at his mighty works, his power. But because of his unbelief, Jesus stops. Jesus doesn't do the mighty works anymore. And let me just give a quick clarifier uh, to smash the word of faith movement. So 70 years ago-ish, uh, a horrible heretical movement started that came out of the kind of the prosperity gospel movement called the word of faith movement. Uh, and essentially what it would teach is if you have 
good enough faith or enough faith, or if you believe hard enough, then God will do stuff or stuff will happen. But if you don't, God won't. So you're in the driver's seat. So if your mom has cancer, you want her to be healed, believe hard enough. Have enough faith, and then she'll be healed. And if she dies, guess what? It's your fault. You didn't have enough faith. She would have been healed if you were just good enough. Look at me. That is ridiculous. It's a heresy that's poisoned much of the church. Throw that in the trash can. That's not at all what Matthew is saying. Matthew isn't saying Jesus all of a sudden was handcuffed by people's lack of belief. He's around unbelievers all the time, and he does many mighty works in their presence. What Matthew is saying here is that because they had already rejected him, he's not doing any more mighty works. Don't get it backwards. The mighty works, the miracles are meant to point you to him. And so when they've already rejected him, He does away with all the mighty works. He's not going to show them the power of the kingdom when they've already rejected the king. You see that. So Jesus is very capable of doing mighty works in the presence of people who don't have enough faith. That's not at all what Matthew is saying here. But rather, he's not going to uh, go the extra length to try and overwhelm the skeptics. Jesus is, please understand this. We often use the term, accept Jesus into your heart. And we have this idea that Jesus is like coming to you begging, please accept me. Right? That, that is not the God of the Bible. Jesus never does anything to beg people who have rejected him. Oh, please don't do this. Accept me. He moves on. The God of the universe doesn't come like a beggar. Anything you would give to him, he already owns, Psalm 50 says. Israel comes and says, here's these great sacrifices, God. And God says, those are already my cows. So you're not doing anything for me. Don't get Jesus backwards. So they reject him, and therefore, they've already rejected the person, therefore, he doesn't do any of the miracles that they were actually astounded by. So here's the result. Here's the result of their rejection. When you try to separate Jesus from his works, or when you try to separate the person from his power, you lose both. When you try to separate the person from his power, you get Neither. And that's exactly what Nazareth is doing. They're amazed at the power. They're unimpressed with the person, and therefore they get neither. So let's do some more self-examination, make sure we're not in danger of this same mistake. Do we ever try to separate Jesus, the person, from his stuff, from what he can do for us. We love the stuff. We don't care about him. We have things all throughout our culture. Again, some of the churches on this street that you'll pass preach the false gospel, the prosperity gospel, which is come to Jesus so that you get his health, wealth, and prosperity. Jesus is a means to this end. Or perhaps something that is more common in this room, Jesus is kind of this divine therapist or a divine butler, right? Come to Jesus and he'll fix your problems. Come to Jesus and he'll make you feel better on a down day. But once you feel better, he can go back to the butler's quarters. Right? You've got the real thing you want. He's a means to this end. So once you have this, he can go away. Or we see uh, kind of a normal form of the gospel as it was presented to me as I was a kid. You've got two destinations. You've got hell and you've got heaven. One is eternal torture. One is eternal awesomeness. Which one do you want to do? Heaven. Was this supposed to be hard? 
Okay, yes, well, accept Jesus into your heart, and then good, write the date in your Bible, and never doubt again. And you're a Christian now. Notice what that says. Jesus has some keys to get into this awesome place. You get the keys, thanks, you can go back to wherever you were before. I want this. You'll see that everywhere. Both sides, political sides use that. The right uses Jesus kind of as a token for just uh, values of truth and things like that. But this is really what they want. We want non-moral decay. And the left will say, you know, he's, he's a token of progressivism or so-called love, right? But that's the real thing they want. They don't love Jesus. They love this ideology. We want the stuff. We don't care about the person. We want the power. We don't care about the person. We treat him, ironically, like we do Santa. You don't and never have loved Santa, even when you were a kid. Okay, you loved what Santa brought you. And then when he brings you the stuff, you've got your milk and cookies, Santa. Fly back and go make my stuff for next year, right? I don't love you. I love seeing, ooh, what did you bring me? If he ever brought you coal, were you like, oh, but I still love him? No, you don't care about him. And that's how so many of us tragically treat the God of the universe. And let me just warn you, if that is primarily how you relate to Jesus. You want the power, you don't want the person. You want the stuff, you don't want the savior. You will lose both. You will have neither. Jesus will not be a means to an end. He will be the glorious end or he will be nothing. He will be the king of your life or he will be Nothing. You cannot have the power without the person. Liking Jesus' abilities or Jesus' works does not make you a Christian. Liking Jesus' power does not make him Lord of your life any more than thinking a woman is pretty makes her your wife. You cannot have the power if you don't have the person. You can't gain the kingdom if you don't give your life to the king. And the reason you can't have the power without the person, the reason you can't have the message but not the man is because the man is the message. He's called the word, not as like a cool fancy title. He is the embodiment of God's speech, of God's word. The person is the power. Where did he get these things himself. Notice Jesus never says, I know the way to life. He says, I am life. He doesn't say, I have the bread of life and I can give you some. He says, I am the bread of life. He doesn't say, I know about truth and I can teach you about it. He says, I am the truth. You can't have the power without the person because they're the same thing. The person is the power. And if you come to him just for his power, you lose both. But let me just encourage you. When you go to him for him, when all other things are a means to getting him, when he is the glorious end, when he's the treasure of your heart, when he's the delight of your soul, when he's the portion you want to enjoy forever, when you get him, you get all that is his. His father is all of a sudden your father. His righteousness is your righteousness. His kingdom is your kingdom. His glorious inheritance is your glorious inheritance. Ephesians 1 tells us we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places when we're in Christ. 
His life is your life. His resurrection is the first fruits of your future resurrection. And his power is your power. You come to him for his stuff. You don't get anything. You come to him for him. You ironically get everything. So they try and separate the power from the person. They lose both. And then our story ends. That's where Matthew stops. So the final thing I want to ask is why did Matthew put this in his gospel? He had a very select amount of room in writing. Why did he put it in his gospel? Why did God put it in the Bible? Maybe a a bigger question. Is it just a random Jesus story to encourage us one day? No. In fact, this story is a piece of a much larger tapestry. It's a scene in a much larger story. So let's lastly look at the redemption of rejection. What does this event have to do with us? And what does it have to do with Jesus' ultimate mission? Everyone in this room and everyone who's ever existed has rejected God. We're all, we all are guilty, like the Nazarenes, right? Everyone is a child of Adam. Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3 had God as their God, and when they took the fruit, that was an action that said, I don't want you to be God, I want to be God. I want to be the one that determines what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil. I want to be like God, meaning calling the shots. That was an act of rejection. And everyone who has been born since then, which is everyone, joins in that rejection of who God is. And that rejected God is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so he sends his son, this word, this message came down. Jesus came down and John 1 tells us, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Look at verse 11. This is our story that we looked at today. And he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He came to Israel, and he was rejected. He came to his hometown, and he was rejected, as we saw today. But then look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, All who did believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will, nor of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. What is John telling you? Out of his rejection comes your acceptance. Out of his rejection, his own that did not receive him comes your acceptance as you believe in his name. You're accepted. You're given the right to become children of God because this rejected Messiah is going to keep ministering and he's eventually going to go to the cross and he's going to pay your penalty, the debt you owe for your rejection. Every time you and I have tried to use him as a means to an end, every time we've tried to use him for his power and showed ourselves to be wicked sinners, he's going to pay so that we could be washed clean on the cross And he's going to be raised anew to newness of life so that we can actually find life and be accepted in him. Not just as people who like Jesus, but as children of the living God. Because of his rejection in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you and I have acceptance into God's very family. His father is our father. The father's delight in him is the father's delight in 
you. And that's something that can never be lost. Height, depth, no army of the world can ever take it from you. You can never lose it yourself, though you may try. You're sealed by his blood. You're sealed by the spirit. You've been accepted into the family of God. Which, do you know what that means? Three things that means as we close. Number one, you have a unshakable peace in your acceptance in Jesus. You have an experiential comfort and you have a unstoppable power. So you need to see the Christian life is one of rejection. You follow him, you join this rejection. A servant is not above his master. They hate me, they hate you. They reject me, they'll reject you. But in our acceptance, in the midst of this life of rejection, you've been given an acceptance that allows you to navigate it with that peace, with that comfort, with that power. So let's look at the unshakable peace. Quite simply, the only one whose opinion matters loves you with a love that surpasses all knowledge. You want to be free from the fear of being rejected by others, of walking into a room and wondering, am I going to perform well and be accepted by the people here? Stand under the beams of the gospel that the father who tore open the heavens and looked at Jesus and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, looks at you from the heavens and says the same. My son, my daughter, in whom I'm accepted, in whom I'm brought into my family. In his rejection, you have an acceptance that allows you to endure the rejection of the whole world and still have a steadfast peace, an unshakable rock beneath your feet. Two, you have an experiential comfort. When rejection comes and we act as humans and feel that pain, you have someone in heaven who is not just knows what that's like because he's God and knows everything. Jesus has felt that. Sometimes we just only think about God in the abstract. Sure, he knows what I'm going through because he's God and he sees everything and he knows everything and he's all these you know, generic, abstract, omnip- omnipotent, omnipresent, all those things. Jesus, yes, has that. He knows the sting of his brother thinking he's crazy. He knows the pain of his hometown turning an eye, hating him, trying to kill him, Luke says, rejecting him. He knows the sting of his closest disciples deserting him in his greatest hour of need. He knows what it's like to be betrayed by someone that you've given your whole life to in Peter. Luke has this scene where the second Peter portrays him, Jesus locks eyes with him. Don't forget Jesus is human. And when you're in pain, when you're going through something difficult, everyone's encouragement helps. But someone who's endured that same trial, there's a deepening there that only kind of experience can bring. They can look at you and they say, I know. And that can be a balm to your soul that just me saying, hey, I'm sorry, doesn't quite do. There's no situation that Jesus Christ can't look at you and say, I know. There's an experiential comfort for you in his rejection and in your acceptance into his family. And then lastly, you have an unstoppable power. You follow him, you join his mission. The Christian life isn't one on defense. I feel like today in our culture, we, we just view ourselves as the big bad world is just coming in and we're just, you know, we need to bunker down and hide and all these sorts of things and we're just scared all the time. That is the exact opposite of the gospel. Jesus says the gates of 
Hell are not going to prevail against my church. Hell's the one that's on defense. You're the one that's on offense. And as you're going throughout this life, you have access to the throne of grace. As you're fighting this war of all wars, you have a hotline to the divine situation room. Hebrews 4, we have access. We can boldly approach the throne of grace that we might find help in our time of need. Because of his rejection, you have an acceptance. You have a radio to the king of kings who is always listening, whose eyes are never off you, and has sent the spirit of power that the unstoppable gospel might push back darkness. Do you see what you have in your acceptance? Because of his rejection, you have a wonderful acceptance in him. So don't let him become familiar. Don't let the glorious realities of the gospel that are meant to be the core of who you are and drive everything you do become normal. Don't reject him either explicitly or functionally, living a life as if he doesn't exist. Rather, see who he is. Join his wonderful rejection because in joining his rejection, you join the family of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you that all these things are true though our hearts might not wrap their fingers around it as quickly as, may, as we might want, I pray that you would do, again, what you do, which is change hearts. We can preach, we can long, but you've got to bring the increase. We can plant and water, but you've got to actual, actually bring the heart transformation. And so we pray that you would do that in our hearts, that we might not live another day outside of these wonderful things. We not, might not live another day abiding and anything else other than the vine that gives life. Thank you for your son. I pray that your spirit would, uh, I pray that, as I heard one pastor say, he, he preaches a better sermon than I just preached and applies it better than I could, that we might praise you and give you the glory that you are worthy of. We pray that would happen. So that would be reality and a stamp on our lives. And we pray that in your son's precious name. Amen.